podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. This is part three of the Coming Soon series, and um, uh, what we've, the series is about is about our identity as a church, uh, specifically our identity as New Life Church. And so in week one, we talked about what it means to be people who worship, and people who connect, and people who serve. And, and last week, we talked about what does it look like to become a church, become a people that serve and be a blessing to the poorest or the the ones who are the neediest within our city. And so to inspire us, to paint that picture for us, we had uh, Matthew Barnett come in and talk to us about his work in Los Angeles and the inner city and the L.A. Dream Center and all of that. But here's the thing to remember as we're discussing this, and we have a couple more weeks with this this week and, and next week, is it's very easy to come into a church and say immediately, okay, so, so what, what do you guys offer? And what, what programs do you have? What, what do you have for, for this? Or what do you have for that? And, uh, and I love the saying at the Benedictine Monasteries, if you were ever to take a retreat in the Benedictine Monastery, which I know is second on your list right after Cancun, but, but if you were ever to go, they would say to you, this, this is the, one of their favorite sayings, hey, thanks so much for being here. We're so glad that you're here. Look, if there's anything you need while you're here at your stay, go see one of the brothers and they'll teach you to live without it. And, and that's a little bit of, I, I think that sort of attitude would be healthy for us to develop as people who belong to a church because we're so accustomed to saying, hey, okay, hey, now by the way, I kind of need this and do you have this for me and my kids need this and my, do you have a small group for this? And they're all legitimate questions and legitimate needs and not, that's not to say we don't care about any of that. But the, the first thing that we've got to sort of develop is a sense of who we are, of who we're called to be, of, of identity. And I think that's sort of something that, that you know, if I, we, we can maybe zoom out and say, you know what, maybe that approach to church is just kind of an indication of sort of how we are with ourselves and with life and that we're always sort of looking for the thing that kind of scratches the itch and talk to me about my purpose and talk to me about what I'm supposed to do and talk to me about my calling. And we want to get on with all of those things before we've even set in our hearts who we are as God's people. Uh, to be honest, there's, there's very little talk in the New Testament about God talking to us about specific vocations and careers. There's a lot of talk about who we're supposed to become in terms of our character and our identity. And so identity always precedes activity. Uh, in a way, identity, really, you could say identity at its core is more important than the activity and the stuff. And so this, this series is kind of a way for us to say, hang on. Let's reset a little bit. Let's recover some of these things that are in our roots as New Life Church, and let's recover them so that as we move forward, we can intentionally move forward with this and not just sort of busy ourselves with a bunch of this and that. And campaigns and causes will come and go, but the core of who we're supposed to be as this church, as this expression of God's people, needs to be set. Amen? I remember, um, I think I was probably seven or eight years old, when this missionary came to talk to us, and I grew up in Malaysia, and this missionary was a uh, sort of a different, different than your, your typical missionary. She, was a, she, she believed that her role was to be a children's missionary, a missionary to children, and it was really a beautiful thing. I mean, I remember 
being at these, these camps, you know, we'd go in these, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call them summers, we don't have summer in Malaysia, we're right on the equator, but we'd go on these, you know, camps during our extended school break, how about that? And, um, and so we'd be away in the hills and, and, and we'd have, a, have had a day of activity and all this stuff, and we'd, we'd all come in, it was about, I don't know, maybe a few hundred of us, you know, gosh, seven-year-olds to ten-year-olds, or seven-year-olds to, you know, so you can imagine it's a bit hard to keep that room still and keep them quiet and everybody's chatting and all this stuff. And this is Malaysia, so the way we do it is when you go in, instead of sitting on, on chairs, we have these little rotan, mat, rotan mats that you roll out and you sit on the floor and everybody sits kind of cross-legged and you fill up the room that way. Well, we'd, you know, we'd sing along during the song singing worship time and all of that, and then someone would come up and try to give us some announcements about the next day, you know, the, the attention was lost. And then this American missionary would get up, and it was unbelievable because she would get up and she would talk in this sweet, quiet, gentle voice, and her eyes danced with joy, and her, you know, her mouth just always smiling, and I remember just being mesmerized, and she would talk to us, and it would take maybe just a few seconds into her talk that the whole room was quiet, and we would be hooked. We would just be hanging on her every word, and she would tell us stories, and, and one of the, the stories that I remember, she would come several years in a row and, and do our camps and retreats, and it made such an impression on me at an early age, but one of the times she came, she told us this story about a missionary named David Livingston, and she talked to us about how David Livingston uh, went to Africa and was obeying God's call to, to take the gospel to Africa and all this stuff, and I was just captivated by this, and I think I might, I was probably eight years old at this point, and, and at the end of her talk, she said, okay, children, does any of you feel that the Lord, do any of you feel the Lord sort of calling you to be like David Livingston, to be a missionary, you know, and I was so moved by this thing, I was like tears running down my little eight-year-old cheeks, and I was like, I can't, you know, the song was playing, and I came up to the front and was kneeling, saying, okay, God, you know, you know, and, uh, and it was just so gripping to me, this idea of a person giving their life to carry the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, and I was so uh, moved by it. I remember, though, as I grew up, there were other missionaries that came, and over time, the message sort of became more crisis-driven, more, we've got work to do, and we've got to do this before they all die and go to hell, and, you know, and then it became, from crisis-driven, it kind of became more guilt-driven, and then it was like, okay, listen, God needs people who are going to not be ashamed and not afraid to take the gospel, and if you're going to do this, you better stand up and cross this line right here, you know, and it was all this stuff, and there's a lot of theatrics that went with the altar call, and I realized either I was growing up or there was something about these people's approach that was very different from the quiet American missionary lady that I remember eight years old, but her way was genuine and gentle, and then as it went on, it began to be more urgent and more crisis-driven and more guilt-driven. And, 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 I, and, you know, in Asia, this is a big deal because careers are sort of a huge kind of track. I mean, this is sort of the thing that you do, giving up, you know, not going to become a, a doctor or a lawyer or to get your MBA. From, that was sort of a rare kind of thing. And so for some of my young friends, they were kind of messed up by this stuff. And like, okay, so does this mean that the only way to really obey God is I got to be a missionary and I got to do this? And, and we wrestle through this, you know, in our, in, our, in our teenage years. And I realize now as I've kind of gone through more years and, and looking back at it, I realize that there's something about that approach that maybe has created a bit of a tension in us because it's done a couple of things. One, it's sort of convinced us that the people that really serve God are the ones that 
engage in foreign mission work, the ones that do something overseas. And, and it sort of has us convinced that, look, missions is this word that describes what people who move away from America do. But the other thing that it sort of says to us is it says, okay, look, this is, this is, this is crisis and this is about the urgencies of this and that and we've got to get, you know. And what I, I'm hard-pressed to find is when the men and women in the New Testament began to speak of Jesus it didn't seem to be this thing that was driven by guilt, and it wasn't this thing that was sort of like, come on, we've got to do this quickly. There seems to be a, a tremendous joy that says, okay, look, there's an announcement that Jesus is the king of the world, and we're going to tell people about this. Paul says at one point, look, I'm constrained by the love of Christ. I'm compelled to speak to you. And so there is this thing where they feel compelled, and they're driven, but they're driven by something else. They're driven by this identity of saying, look, we are the people of God and we've got to make this announcement of what God has said and done for all of us. Paul says we're messengers of reconciliation. We're the ones that are called to sort of say, okay, look what this great God has done. Look who he is and look what he's done. And this is why when we began this series, I, I talked to you about Genesis 12, the verse that was our Old Testament reading. Because Genesis 12, and even prior to this, but Genesis 12 is kind of this, this huge key moment in, in our story. It's the moment where God says, okay, look, I'm going to choose one family and make a covenant with them, and through those people, through that covenant people, I'm going to use them to do my work on the earth. I'm going to use them to bless and rescue and redeem and heal and mend and restore all of the cosmos, all, every nation. And what Paul and these guys are saying in the New Testament is, look, covenant people used to be this one family, this one lineage, this one race, but now here it is, it's all of us. We've gotten in on this somehow. We're in on this. We've become the people of God, and so if we are the people of God, then speaking of him, speaking of what he's done, announcing the news that Jesus has come, Jesus is the rightful king. Speaking that word became part of their identity. Well, that's what we do. We're the people of God. Of course, that's what we do. In fact, if you look at the preaching in the New Testament, it's very interesting because they made it a point, particularly Paul made it a point to use words about Jesus that were words that were used about Caesar. In, in Paul's day, people called Caesar Soter and Kyrios, Savior and Lord. They called him that because of what he had done with the empire and what he had done to bring peace and all of this stuff. And Paul's saying, let me tell you who the real Soter and Kyrios is. Let me tell you who the real Savior and Lord is. It's Jesus, the true Lord, the true Savior, the true hope of all the nations. That's Paul's big announcement it's not this, oh my gosh, I've got to tell you this or you're going to go to hell. And if you died tonight and got hit by a truck, do you know where you're going? And if you were in a burning building, I've got to show you the only way out. And all of this stuff that we've acquired over the last 20 or 30 years, that our evangelism is so tainted by guilt and so tainted by fear and so driven by all of that stuff. But that's not how those guys preached. To the Jews, Paul preached, he's the Messiah. He's the true king, the promised one that you've been waiting for. It's him. And to the Gentiles, he said, you know, you were kind of hoping that Caesar would fix stuff and set the world right. Well, he's not really your Savior or your Lord. It's Jesus, 
The gospel that these men preached was that Jesus is the true king of creation, the true Lord of every nation, the only one that our hope should be in. And that's why Paul says, look, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that this declaration of Jesus as king, when you believe in it, when you respond to it, when you yield to it, that's what produces salvation. Does that make sense? And so the carrying of this message has to do with who we are. If you understand that, okay, I am part of the people of God, and my message then is about who the real king is and what God is like and whom the hope of every nation should be in, then all of a sudden this is not about, oh my gosh, we're running out of time and we got to do this, and, we gotta, and it's sort of crisis-driven. It's interesting to me that the only one who didn't have a Messiah complex was Jesus. You see Jesus walking from place to place, being late on occasion to events that we might have been, oh my God, we got to get there right away. He hears that his friend is dead and he says, I'll get there. Like, okay. And there's not a panic about it. Tonight when we're talking about being a church that goes and a church that prays, But we need this to frame our conversation because I don't want to talk to you about missions tonight in in language of panic or language of guilt or language of fear. I want us to embrace this as a part of our identity. And I think if we get that, then all of a sudden it's not about going on missions, it's about being missional. Being mission-minded. It's not about saying, well, no, 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 I believe in missions, but I haven't really been on a missions trip and all that. And it's, not a, it's less about going on missions than it is sort of saying, you know, I will become a missional person. I'm going to unpack this for you in just a moment. But it's not, it becomes less about engaging in an activity, but rather instead it becomes about embracing this identity of saying, okay, look, I'm not, it's, uh, it's not about saying, okay, good, come on, now let's in- embrace this activity and this busyness and all this. It's about saying, I'm embracing this identity. That if I've been grafted in, if I am part of the people of God, the ones through whom God works on the earth, then this is just part of what we do. We, we announce Jesus as the real hope. We announce Jesus as the real Savior. We announce Jesus as the true Lord. It, there's a shift that begins to happen. What does that look like? What does it look like to become a go church? What does a go church look like? What does it mean to, for New Life to be a people? And we've always valued missions. You know, New Life partners with 35 different with people, missionaries, pastors, leaders in 35 different countries all around the world. That's a remarkable thing for, for one particular local church to do that. And we're grateful for those opportunities, and we believe in those partnerships. But what does it mean for all of us to become a a go church, a church that embraces the identity of being missional, not just going on missions? I think part of it is um, we become a people who are not afraid of new places. Uh, These are some pretty practical, simple kind of statements here, but we become a people who are not afraid of new places, and, and think about the Genesis call. You know, Abraham is saying, okay, leave your father's house and go. Where? I'll tell you. But how might just follow, okay? And that's a pretty bold sort of move. 
to be willing to go, not afraid of a new place. When I was 10 years old, my parents felt like the Lord said, okay, go, leave, pack up all the stuff, and, and take your family and move to America. We moved from Malaysia to America when I was 10 years old. My parents went to Bible school there. We lived there for three years. And then somewhere in the middle of their third year of being at the Bible school, they heard, they felt like the Lord spoke to them again and said, okay, go, as in go back. Pack up the stuff. You didn't come here to stay. Go back. We moved back, not fully sure of what they would do. And they began to help the church that, that I'd grown up in. They began to help that church start a Bible school and a training center. And then a few years after that, they planted a church in a, in a town outside the capital city. I watched this unfold. I saw many days when, when we were in the midst of living by faith, not knowing where this was going to come from, where that was going to come from, and watching the Lord sort of do something remarkable. I remember one night when we had just moved to Portland, and you have to understand, my dad, when we lived in Malaysia, he worked as an account exec for a big ad agency, and so we had a, a modest lifestyle. But when we moved to the States, he couldn't get a job anywhere else because of visa issues, so he had to work as the janitor in the church. And at that time, minimum wage was $4.50 an hour. This was 1988, you know? And so that's what he did. And it was you know, enough. We had our savings that were paying for their tuition, and, and, but it was, you know, we had to kind of budget things. And, and there was one night where we were sitting in our apartment, and, and my sister and I were talking. We were like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a pizza right now? Which is so funny, because now when you think of pizza, typically you're like, oh, it's pizza? You know, it's like, but then I just remember as this kid who just moved from Malaysia thinking, oh, if we could just have a pizza, you know? And, um, and we're like, well, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Well, we can't afford that, you know. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and it's the neighbors. And they're like, yeah, we just had, we just had some people help us move in. We're, we're the apartment right, you know, below you, whatever. We've got some extra boxes of pizza. You guys want this? We're like, oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like manna from heaven, you know. And there's something about the not being afraid to take these risks, and I think that, that, that in those moments, I'm not saying that all of a sudden, woo, all your wildest dreams come true, but being a people that go, being a ch- goes, being a church, the go church, what happens in us is when we say, okay, I- I'm going to take a step out. I'm not going to be afraid to go. I'm not going to be afraid to take a step and go somewhere different. That maybe in the midst of that, once we take those steps is when we start to see God at work. Um. Bruce right here, you know, Bruce is a pilot for American Airlines. I asked him if I could tell the story, and, and he's been corresponding with a, with a church, with a pastor in Kenya for several years now, and, and it's been on his heart. You know, he thought, I just, I want to go. I want to see this guy's church, and this guy's church is in the sticks, you know. I mean, they don't have a building. They, they do a tremendous work with orphans and all this stuff, and, and it's just been on his heart. I remember a few months ago, Bruce, Bruce telling me, okay, I think I'm actually going to go. I'm like, you know, and I'm, I'm supposed to be like the voice of encouragement. I'm like, well, Bruce, I don't know. Are you sure? And what's, you know, what about diseases, you know? Uh, and, 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 and actually, by the way, I've, I've become, and this is a confession to you, I've become much more timid than I used to be. I mean, when I was young, I was like, oh, man. When I was young, I'm 32. When I was younger, when I was single, how's that? Um, I, I was like, yeah, I'll go here, I'll go there. It doesn't matter. You know, I spent a month in Nigeria. I spent a month in South Africa. Not that South Africa was hard going, the parts we were in anyway. And, and, and all this stuff. But now being a dad, having kids, it's just a bit more difficult. So now my standard answer when someone says, well, Glenn, are you going on missions? I'm like, well, I am. That's, I came to America. I'm a missionary from Malaysia. I mean, I married a local. I, you know, I eat the food. I mean, I'm just, really... 
No, I, 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 there's room for me to be challenged. But Bruce, thankfully, was not like that. Bruce was like, I'm going. And he just came back a few weeks ago. I saw his pictures last week. He sent me the pictures. And um, unbelievable. I mean, the things, I bet Bruce could sit down and tell us all stories for a couple hours of things you saw the Lord do at work and work through you, ways that you never thought you'd, the Lord would, would work through you in just because you went, you know? And we, if you've ever been on a short-term trip, I think that's part of the value of going on a trip is sometimes going on a trip is the way that says, uh, we, you know, we can kind of philosophize and say, well, I, you know, I'm just going to be a missionary here. Well, that's great. But sometimes we don't really know what it means to live like a missionary until you go on a short-term trip. And you go, by going on to this new place, by going on a trip, all of a sudden it sort of says, wait a second, this is maybe a better way to be thinking. And then you come home and you're like, ooh, I've got to reevaluate my values and the way that we're spending and the way that we're, and we've got to tweak some things because I, I'm not really living missionally here. Sometimes it takes going to jumpstart that, to get that working in us. Secondly, I think to be a go church, or a go church kind of looks like people who are unhindered, people who are not hindered by racism or bigotry. And this is, you know, quite possibly a, a, a real thing, a real barrier for some of us. Like, well, I, no, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to be a carrier of, of the Lord's love, and I'd love to do this or that, but I'm not sure about the, doing that, and I just don't know about that, and oh, I'm not racist or anything, but I'm just not sure about how to engage in this, and there's a great amount of discomfort that begins to happen in us when you really start to explore this and, and live this out, and, and um, you know, I, I married a farm girl from Iowa, a girl who grew up in a town with no stoplight, and whose grandparents had never left that town, and the very first time I went to meet them, the grandparents and extended family, was an interesting trip. <laughs> now, Malaysia, where is that exactly, you know? And <laughs> sometimes it's just, it takes the form of a fear. It takes the form of a, a pause of like, ah, I don't know. There was a different form of this that happened even with Peter in the, in the early churches. It was forming because they were trying to figure out, now Messiah was all Jewish language. This was all Jewish talk. So what do we do with this if, it's, if other Gentiles, if Gentiles want to come in? And so in Acts 10, it's, this is Peter, and he, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, get thee beat. No, Peter did say that once before. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back. And then Peter starts to understand, wait a second, what's going on? Is Peter's in the home of this Gentile, this, this man named Cornelius. And the, the rest of the chapter continues where Peter starts preaching Christ to him and they get saved and the whole household gets saved. And Peter's sort of like, wow, didn't know that was going to happen. Didn't think you really wanted that. But you know, the biggest paradigm-blowing thing for those guys, the thing that sort of blew up their paradigms was this realization that what God was doing on the earth was not just for one people, that even the covenant people, Abraham, they were blessed for what? 
to be a blessing to others. They're the lucky people to carry, to be luck bearers to the rest of the world. They're the ones that are supposed to ultimately bring this to everyone else. And so when Jesus comes and says, look, in me, they're all covenant people. Neither Jew, nor Gentile. It's all of us, if, as long as you're in Christ. That was hard to sort of shift. Which, by the way, is the reason. If, you ever, if someone ever says to you, well, why is it that certain Old Testament laws are no longer, we don't value that anymore? How can we still keep the one about murder and the one about adultery, but we don't keep the one about no bacon, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Just enjoy the bacon, you know? No. <laughs> no, here, here's why. In a nutshell, the, the lens you can use is every law that, discri- that distinguished a Jew from a non-Jew was done away with. That's, in a nutshell, what happened. So circumcision, no more, because that was a distinguishing thing between Jews as covenant people and Gentiles as not. Dietary restrictions, no more dietary restrictions. Why? Because that was going to say, you are the people of God, the ones who eat this way, and you are not. Sabbath-keeping, in, in, as far as a particular holy day, not the principle of Sabbath-keeping, but the holy day version. That's why Jesus, why is it that that's the one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus sort of says, no, it's fine, because he's trying to flaunt and break all the laws? What about the other nine? No, 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 you're, not, you're, not, you're missing the point. The point that Jesus was trying to make is, look, don't you see that in me it's been opened up to the whole world? That now everybody can be a covenant people. So any law or any practice or any holy day or any dietary thing that distinguished a Jew from a non-Jew as if they were still the only covenant people is now done away with. And Paul works hard to say this. Look, don't worry about this stuff. We're all the covenant people now. Does that make sense? And that's a little tidbit that might help you if someone's like, well, how come you guys still eat shrimp and bacon, but you don't, you know? Well, this is why. And this is what Peter's starting to get is, look, Peter, you can't be racist. You can't be bigoted. You can't be narrow-minded. You can't be small-minded about this. Peter, you've got to see that because of Jesus, everybody now can become part of the people of God if they are in Christ. That's the beauty of this. And thirdly, a go church looks like this. It looks like people who are always looking for an opportunity. People who are always looking for an opportunity. There's a story in Acts 8. I'll read this briefly and then say something about this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes, drawn, uh, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and is on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Now this was likely a scroll, okay? It wasn't on his Kindle or anything. The prophet, and the spirit said to Philip, now go to that chariot and stay near it. So here's Philip just kind of doing his thing and he sees a dude sitting in a chariot reading the scroll and he thinks, hmm, I wonder what that is. And he feels this impression and says, just go and stand by him. He goes and stands by him, and then he decides to say, do you understand what you're reading? And the dude says, how can I understand unless someone explains it? And Philip says, I'm your man. I'll explain this to you. He looked for that opportunity, and he saw it, and he seized it, and he took it, and it happened. Now, I think so many of us are looking for other opportunities to come, and so we miss those moments right here and now. 
when I, when I used to work a lot with the mill, our college and 20-somethings ministry here at New Life, I, I would sit with, with students that would say, oh, Glenn, I, you've got this call on my life, and I believe God wants me to do this, and there's just great things that God has for me. And I would hear that all the time at ORU, you know? Be like, oh, you know, hi, what's your name? Oh, I'm John so-and-so, and, uh, and by the way, I feel like the Lord's called me to be the next Billy Graham. Like, wow, I was just going to ask you what your major is, but you can tell me, you know, like, and then they start to tell me, well, here's what my ministry is going to be, and here's what God's going to use me to do, and it's like, man, that's awesome. And then a year after graduation, they're like, man, hey, what are you doing, John? We, you know, like, you had all these dreams, and yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. God's going to make it happen someday. I'm still hanging on, but I just, you know. Or I'd have friends that I was in theology classes with, studying to be in ministry. Oh, I'm going to be a pastor of a mega church, and I'm going to do church in a brand new way, and we're going to revolutionize, because that's, revolution is like a favorite word when you're in your 20s, you know. We're going re- to start a revolution of church, you know. It's like, oh, wow, that's so awesome. Oh, by the way, what church are you serving in right now as a student? Oh, no, man, no, I'm not serving in any church right now. Like, I sleep in on Sundays. But, but man, when I graduate, I'm going to, okay? Now, it's easy to laugh at, at sort of these you know, extreme examples, but we've all got versions of that, where we say, well, no, God's, no, God really wants me to do this, or God's going to use me to do this, but, but I'm just waiting for that someday. I'm just waiting for that great someday. It's going to happen. I'm just waiting for it. And meanwhile, there's all these little moments, little steps, little pieces that we kind of just ignore all along the way. I wrote a book called Butterfly in Brazil several years ago that talks about this idea that something small is really how we make a change. It's really how we make a difference. It's really a small step, an email, a letter to this pastor. It's a, it's a thing. It's a conversation with a friend. It's a question. It's those things that set into motion what God does. But it's the willingness to look for an opportunity and to take it. Maybe it's not your neighbor knocking on your door in the middle of the night and saying, what must I do to be saved? You know, maybe it's not that yet, but maybe it's just a conversation about how stressful their job is. And you say, man, you know what? I'll pray for you. Oh, gee, well, thanks, okay. Maybe it's little moments that we look for and we learn to take and learn to seize because the truth is we don't change the world. We change the situations in front of us. We change the little things that we have opportunity to, influence into. You don't love a generation. You don't love the nations. I mean, I, 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 I get nervous sometimes when people say, we just need to, you know, we got to have a passion for the nations. What does that mean? Like, what does that mean exactly? Like, that your bed sheet is made of flags? I mean, like, what... I mean, have a passion for the nate. Those are abstracts. Those are concepts. Those are big words. They're just words. But when you say, Susie, down the street from me, I'm going to pray for an opportunity to talk to her. Or John, or that missionary that I just met last week, or that trip that's happening this summer, I'm going to go. Those are the ways that we actually seize the moments and do it. It's not by saying, so, oh, I'm just going to wait. I mean, what if Bruce had said, you know what, I'm just going to wait till everything's in order and everything's right. I mean, what if, but here's something small that he did, visit this pastor, and now there's a relationship going, there's a potential to really help them build a church. I mean, it's remarkable. He's a pilot, you know? 
Come on. Oh, but I need to really just wait till I figure out my missiology and eschatology and, you know, like, just... What if there's moments right here, right now? What if there are places in front of you? What if there are people? What if there are conversations right here and right now? Charles Dickens wrote a book, uh, obviously a long time ago, called The Bleak House, and, and it describes this woman, Mrs. Jellyby, you know, and um, she has this heart for the Boreabulaga uh, people. And she's, she's so consumed with these people. She's writing letters and all this stuff, and she's consumed. By, but these guests come to stay with her, these kids, you know, as guests for some reason or other. And, um, and the house is in shambles. The kids are in rags. The dinner is barely cooked. You know, there's stuff piled up everywhere. And she's like, you just got to forgive me. I'm just busy with the people of Borea Bulaga. You know, and she's never even been, right? So I think that's like us sometimes, you yeah? know? We've got this heart for missions, We've saying, what about these moments right here? What about these opportunities right here? I, I, I think, and I, there's loads of stories I could tell. I mean, I think of Ben Couch, you know, several years ago, and, and the, his burning heart for, you know, the people in the mountains of Nepal. And what, but what he did in the here and now moments before he ever moved there. It's okay to have a dream and okay to have a goal and okay to have a plan, but the question is, what are the small opportunities you work that out now? What are the small ways you act on it now? Because those things don't just happen. They don't drop in your lap. They don't one day sort of say, oh, congrats. You're now a, a missionary, you know. It becomes when we become these, the people that are missional, that look and embrace the opportunities and the moments. Fourthly, the last piece about this being missional, being a go church, is people who don't always play it safe. People who, and I'm not talking about being foolish or being, um, you know, headstrong and, and, and naive. And we have more resources available to us in terms of research and preparation and networking and all that. I'm not in favor, you know, we, we, we as a church, the reason we partner with missionaries around the world is because our, our philosophy, our approach is not a maverick sort of, just go, man, and go crazy. But to say, let's be careful, let's be wise, let's be strategic, let's do this, let's do this the right way. But even in that, there's something risky about it. There is. There's something risky at all. But then again, to open up the front door and walk out of your house is a risk, yeah? And there's something about the, this choice that says, you know what? I'm going to be a person that, that says, I have a mission as, b- because I am the people of God, I'm part of the people of God, I have a mission. I'm going to live that out in a particular way, and yeah, there's going to be some risks. Um, I, I am a rejoicing Denver Bronco fan with the pick of Tim Tebow, and um, you know, we'll see how that plays out, but I think it's a cool thing. And I was watching, you know, I'm a junkie, so I'm watching all these different interviews and all this stuff, and and someone asked him the question only because they just do that here in Colorado. He said, so Tim, tell us about the ad you did for Focus on the Family. He said, it's a great ministry. I love it. Believe it. And they said, did that cost you anything? He said, as a matter of fact, there were a couple of endorsement deals that were on the table, and then after doing that ad, they were off the table. They pulled them. He said it. And he said, but you know what? That's the risk I'm willing to take because this is what I believe in. And I just thought, mm. And there's something about that, isn't there? Because there's risks in everything that we're doing, but if there's not something that's saying, look, this is the picture, and this is why, then 
then the risks are just the random ones, you know? But if you're making intentional choices and saying, you know what, this is my identity, this is who we are. We're missional people. We're people who carry the message, the announcements of Jesus as king and Jesus as savior and Jesus as hope. And yeah, that's probably going to result in some opposition and some persecution. But you know what? Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Okay. Then Lord, help me not to always play it safe. I think our going eventually shapes our praying. And becoming a person that is missional, whether, whether it's through the trips that kind of jumpstart you or whether it's learning every day to, to get up with this habit that says, okay, God, help me today. Help me to look for opportunities, recognize the way that you're at work and to kind of seize it. I think then that starts to change the way that we pray, you know? How does a going church pray? How does the go church pray? Three things real quick and we wrap up. I think the Go Church prays for open doors. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, devote yourself to prayer. Uh, and then he says here in verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. He says earlier in verse 3, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Here's Paul saying, look, just pray. Pray that we'll always have opportunities to talk about it. Open doors, windows in people's hearts and lives, conversations that pop up. What a great prayer when you start your day. God, I'm going to work today and I do not like my coworkers or whatever, you know. But God, give me, give me an opening. Give me an open door. Lord, my neighbor. We haven't, you know, we haven't talked for months because it's been cold outside. But um, we're starting to see each other again now and we come home. You know, Lord, help, give me an opening to say something. Pray that. Why not? Secondly, pray for fearless words. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Fearless, pray that I'll be fearless about this. And thirdly, pray for the message to be heard. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this in verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Stop. Sometimes we take fearless words to mean obnoxious words. And in the name of not being ashamed and not backing down, we shove it down someone else's throat. Well, I'm not backing down. Sure, yeah, you know, no, no one would ever accuse you of that. Paul says here, recognize that the God of this age has blinded their eyes. They're in darkness. The best that they can do, the best that a person outside of Jesus can do is sin. The best that they can do is sin. And for that matter, the best that we used to be able to do was sin. Paul repeatedly in his letters to these churches would say to them, don't forget that some of you were this and this and this and this and this. And many times he would say, and me, I'm the chief of all sinners. I was the guy who did this and this. I was killing people in the name of God. And you have to wonder, what happened to that approach? That the same Paul, who in the name of God and so zealous for God, was killing others, 
Do you think then that when he became a Christian and we started believing in Jesus, did that zeal and passion look the same way? That it was use of power and force and bullying people? Was he doing that? No. I would like to suggest to you that for Paul, it wasn't only that his message changed, but his method changed as well. He was totally different. So many of us are trying to do the Lord's work, but not in the Jesus way. The Jesus way never bullies, never entices. You could hardly call it enticing when Jesus has his biggest crowd in John 6 and then says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no part of the kingdom. The most offensive things you could say to a Jew, you know, is the blood. They wouldn't even eat an animal that had blood in it. Now you're talking about eating. It's like, ugh, see ya, church is over. Jesus wasn't enticing, didn't bully him. Come on, guys, you got to believe in me. In all of our boldness, in all of our prayerfulness, in all of our being missional, how we do this matters immensely. How we do this matters immensely. And what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians is this. The God of this age has blinded their minds. And then verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You think maybe Paul's suggesting to the church in Corinth that they're blinded by the God of darkness, they're living in darkness, and hey, you were once too until the light began to shine in your heart. A huge thing to pray is that our message will be heard, and what that means is Jesus, let your light break in on their hearts. I can't bully them into this. I can't entice them into this. I can't cajole them and push them and manipulate them and yell at them and scream at them and legislate them. And I can't do any of those things. What I can do is live out as the people of God, pray for the opportunities, look for the opportunities, take the opportunities, and trust that God will make his light shine on their heart. What if we embrace this identity of the church that goes and prays and prays and goes and becomes part of our rhythm, part of our living? What if when we do a big event like the thorn, it's nice, but it's not the only time you talk to someone about Jesus, about who he is? I would love for us not to rely on the church to attract people in. That would have been a funny idea for these first century believers, you know? Because their churches were in homes and we have now excavations of like, you know, some of these other homes. It's about maybe 60 people fitting there. They weren't like putting on a skit and inviting everyone hoping to pull them in. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way the gospel spread in the first few centuries is because these people at the marketplace fishing village, that wherever they went, kept announcing that Jesus is the real hope of every nation, that Jesus is the real king of all creation. And they kept announcing it, and they kept talking about it, and they were undeterred by persecution that came upon them, and they never stopped, even when insults and persecution came, they never fought back with it. 
They weren't afraid of the risks that came because of it. They kept on announcing it. And the light of Jesus kept shining and shining and shining. That's what we're part of. We're the same people of God, you and I. So let's not cozy back into this big building and nice church and good events, good, nice programs, and say, well, let's just really hope that the Lord will draw people in. Yeah, sure, he might. But maybe he wants you to carry him out, carry the announcement out. I'm with you in the, in the discomfort of this. I, I'm looking around. I see many of you that work for Christian ministries. I obviously work here. I'm not praying for opportunities with my coworkers. You know, pretty sure they're all good. But I need to be stretched in thinking about my neighbors, like you do. I need to be stretched in thinking about the moments that all of a sudden open up, the Philip and the Eunuch moment, the moment where you maybe you just met somebody for the first, one time. It was a brief sort of thing, but my gosh, I think there was a little window there to say something. Pray that we'll be the people that are alert, that are aware, and that in the love and name of Jesus, we shine his light to the world. Let's pray. God, for a lot of us, we've got to unlearn some some habits and some bad habits of trying to persuade and argue and bully and entice and attract and all of that. And and, and Jesus, when we think of you and what you did when you were on earth, help us to do that. Help us to carry your light, to serve, to love. I pray for every one of us this week, would you give us a little window of something, a little opportunity of something, little moments where we th- say, okay, okay, wait a second, I think I see a moment here. And give us courage to say something, give us courage to speak. Thank you that we are the people of God. We belong to you. You have been shining your light all through the ages, through an imperfect people, through a broken church, through weak lives since the beginning of time. So God, what we want to say to you is, here am I, send me. Send us to our neighborhood. Send us to our schools. Send us to our friends. Send us. Send us. Help us to carry this identity of being your people. People who pray. People who go. People who announce that Jesus is the hope of the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.